Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Aaron Derfell. Good morning. Healthcare reporter for the Montreal Gazette, recently uh, nominated for a National Newspaper Award. I hope you win. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Oh, good to be here, Jesse. Today, Aaron, do you like the smooth, minty finish of AstraZeneca or the stabby goodness of Pfizer? A nation of picky little babies act like they have a choice. And singling out individual critics as enemies of the state from the highest seat of power. It's not just for Trump anymore. Glad to have you back. It's really, really good to be here, Jesse. I, I really enjoy the show. This episode is brought to everybody by Doug Malik, Sean O'Brien, Carl Palin, Kate Kimberly, Kevin Berlant, Harith Al-Shakarchi, Riley Wignall, and Maggie. Hi, I'm Maggie, a public servant in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because it challenges our naive and starry-eyed notion of what it means to be Canadian. Inside that vial, a shot at ending the pandemic. But as vaccines keep rolling out, AstraZeneca is hitting bumps in the road once more. On Friday, Health Canada approved that vaccine for people over the age of 18. Then late today, the committee that advises Health Canada on vaccines seemed to contradict that. Let's talk about public confidence in the vaccine when we keep hearing about deaths and a possible link to blood clots. Your thoughts? Aaron, I am usually in favor of providing the public with the most information, the most reliable information that we can so that people can make up their own minds and make up their own decisions for themselves. You know, it's kind of the basic principle of this journalism thing. But when it comes to vaccine news, and it's, it's almost become like a vaccine beat, I am not so sure that giving people this information the way that the media has been doing has been a good idea. I, I, what do I mean here? Can I just run through a timeline of AstraZeneca headlines? By all means. All right. We'll tell this story through the headlines. And our story begins February 26, CTV News reports. Health Canada approves two AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccines. Oh, that's good. A few days later, CTV reports AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine not recommended for people 65 and older. Well, that's bad. A couple weeks later... Even worse, New York Times tells us that AstraZeneca 
is suspended in European countries because of worries over blood clots. That's really bad. A couple days later, AstraZeneca now recommended for people over 65. Well, that's good. But then three days after that, CBC tells us, Canada monitoring guidance on AstraZeneca amid potential link to blood clots. Oh, well, that's bad. But then on March 23rd, here's the CBC headline. Health Canada says AstraZeneca shot is safe as U.S. questions vaccines clinical trial data. And here's where our story ends. On the same day, Associated Press uh, story picked up in the Toronto Star. Reputation of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine marred by missteps. You think? What the hell are we supposed to do with this? It's sometimes impossible to absorb. You've got these series of conflicting headlines and it feeds into the already existing vaccine hesitancy. A lot of parsing uh, of uh, this particular vaccine. And it does create this overall impression that this vaccine is just not safe. Of course, AstraZeneca hasn't helped its case by providing some outdated uh, data to U.S. authorities. But I do think that the news media have fed into this general mistrust of vaccines that I don't think is helpful at this time. Yeah, I mean, you know, this idea of like, give me the the facts and and I'll make up my own mind. I am a disease-prone meatbag like everyone else. And uh, I'm, 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 I guess, under this illusion that, like, I have choices here. But the fact of the matter is, like, the process by which the decision that I'm, I'm, I'm stressing over with these headlines is made is, like, should I take this vaccine? Is this vaccine safe? There is a much better process that this vaccine has already been through. And I was listening to um, another podcast that the Toronto Star puts out and, and other places about how the public scientific literacy about what it means when you like have like a percentage rate of, of efficacy and, and are like, I don't know if everybody knows how to read that properly. And actually what that efficacy rate meant was different than what I thought it meant. I don't think that that's useful information. And I think it's playing into like um, maybe an idea that like. And I, I, I've seen this play out in my own family and other people like this idea that, that some people after finally being able to get a vaccine are like, maybe I'll wait a little bit for this better vaccine. You know, like the, the new iPhone is coming out. It's 5G. And it occurs to me that like we're dealing with this as if it's like a consumer choice issue, whereas it's an urgent public health thing. Like it's it, it's it's you can't apply like a consumerist mentality to a collective public health crisis where really the best vaccine is the first one you can get stabbed with. Absolutely. COVID-19 causes blood clots. You know, before the pandemic and before this vaccine, you know, people in the general population had blood clots. What I don't appreciate is that at one point AstraZeneca halted its uh, clinical trial because of one case of a neurological reaction. And there was a lot of media attention focused on this. It's, it's a case here of proportionality. You can really go overboard in scrutinizing every little thing. And yet we're in a pandemic. And uh, this vaccine has shown to be effective. And uh, it has been administered in the United Kingdom in the tens of thousands. And uh, there haven't been any horror stories. What we've seen in the United Kingdom is that after 30% of the population is vaccinated, 
the number of COVID-19 cases has been dropping along with you know the public health restrictions. So I think the UK example is truly a positive in- endorsement of this vaccine. I can tell you that I've been receiving emails from people saying, is there a way to know which vaccine I'm getting? And there are people who are avoiding getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. So it's a, re- a real problem. And, and you know, at one point, uh, the the church weighed in on this. So that uh, that also fed into the distrust of the vaccines. And it's just, it's an unfortunate development in this pandemic. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to kind of like uh, decry the media writ large. I think that there's a lot of really good reporting. It, it, it's a strange thing where on an individual basis, people are like, well, look, this is the news today. We're going to report it. But on aggregate, it amounts to this thing that is just like, it's not useful. And then there's a question of focus. Like when we're reading that there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people at an Amazon uh, warehouse who are all infected, you might wonder like, well, wh- why is there so much focus on these variable rates of uh, vaccine efficacy when the public health advice and directive is very clear? Get the first vaccine you're offered. If the idea is that we're supposed to do something with the information we get, there's a lot more point in us getting angry about the situation in warehouses and factories than there is in us doing this comparison shopping for these vaccines. Definitely. I myself have resisted writing about um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. I focused more on uh, the logistics, the vaccine rollout. Ontario and, and Quebec have set ambitious goals to vaccinate, you know, every or at least partially vaccinate every adult by July 1st in Quebec by, uh, I think, uh, June 24th. Mm-hmm. That's been my focus. But I've tried to stay away from is this dangerous or not, precisely because I think it, it feeds into vaccine hesitancy, which is the last thing we need in a pandemic. It was interesting. We've been worried this whole time that people are going to be like anti-vaxxers and they're going to be hesitant. Like when I thought about vaccine hesitancy, I always just imagine like people like, wow, how many people are really into that kind of conspiracy thinking? But in practice, what I'm seeing is that the hesitancy, it actually is hesitancy. It's not people who think vaccines don't work. It's like I'm hesitating because maybe there's a better one or like, you know, I've gotten used to just being at home. So do I really need to risk a blood clot? And of course, you know, we're giving these vaccines to everyone. And at any given point in time, some people have blood clots, as you say. And like, you know, it got wildly overreported as if there's an association. For all I know, Aaron, there might be two or three competing chickenpox vaccines on the market. I imagine that every vaccine has some little fringe percentage of side effects or, or complications. And maybe if I really wanted to go dig deep into the different measles vaccine or chickenpox vaccines that my kids could get, I could get really, really stressed out about getting them the right one. But the truth of the matter is, I just do what my doctor tells me. Like, we just we just take that advice and we defer. I mean, you must defer to medical experts if you don't have that expertise yourself. And we trust that we're being given the best possible outcome, even if it's not 100% perfect. But in this case, where it's actually much more urgent than those other types of medicines or vaccines, we're getting incredibly picky. And then I read, lo and behold, that um, a significant percentage of older people who can get the vaccine have not registered to get one. Yes. Uh, and and the irony that you pointed out, it is... Um I think accurate that it's the mainstream news media, not the um, conspiracy uh, nuts, perhaps inadvertently, who have been feeding this vaccine hesitancy. And so that's probably the reason why we need journalists uh, on beats covering health to precisely to place these issues in in the proper uh, context. Definitely, you know, we don't do this about the chickenpox vaccine. We don't do this about the uh, flu vaccine, but we're doing this definitely about these uh, 
uh, as of yet, you know, three uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And then there's the Johnson Johnson one that's going to come out. And I'm mm-hmm. sure there might be a controversy surrounding that. It it really is a sad chapter in the way the uh, the news media has, has been covering this aspect of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to try to get into explainer mode here. Uh, beyond that, my understanding is that one thing that all of these vaccines have in common is that they dramatically reduce hospitalization and death. The surge of, of COVID spread uh, goes down when these vaccines, any one of them, gets widely dispersed. I mean, that's like if, if that's accurate uh, and, and you are a health reporter, that's kind of all I need to know. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, these vaccines are being submitted for approval, you know, in each country. Uh, health Canada has taken its time to review the data. And furthermore, we do have, at least in the case of AstraZeneca, a clear example of what's gone on in the UK. So we should be definitely reassured by uh, by the experience in the UK. Yeah. We've been focused on the media as we do here. But, you know, our managing editor, Andrea, pointed out to me, like, there's another aspect of this, too, which is just that, like, we are not equipped for crisis in our societies. Like, you know, we're, we're equipped for comparison shopping. But... We just don't understand crisis, uh, perhaps, and, and, and that some of this kind of hesitation might be attributable to that. Well, yeah, all along we've been lurching from, you know, one mini crisis to the next uh, in the pandemic. And it just uh, highlighted just how uh, woefully we've been prepared at, at so many levels. And we're now seeing that in Brazil, the healthcare system there has collapsed. So by comparison, Canada has fared better. But there is this expectation that we, I think, should have been able to deal with this um, sooner uh Canada had been hit with SARS. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't the first time, you know, we were buffeted by a novel pathogen. And we should have learned from these experiences, but we definitely didn't. Aaron, we're going to duly note some things that uh, people might uh, want to know more about. I got one for you here. Sure. This is from uh, Quebec. This is from La Presse. A reporter named Vincent LaRouche had this story. You know, we, we recently talked on Canada Land about Haiti's ruling elite. You don't always expect people in politics uh, or an elected office or involved with government or, or public service to be, like, super wealthy. But uh, a lot of uh, Haiti's ruling establishment are super rich and sometimes through dubious uh, sources. And sometimes that money ends up in Montreal. That is the context. I don't have any specific connection to what I'm about to tell you, uh, but that, that might be relevant context to the story that La Presse reported on a Montrealer named Roxanne Balthazard, who was one of these people who bids on, on the contents, the unknown contents of storage lockers. And she bid like a thousand bucks plus change for a storage locker that looked promising. And wow, she hit the jackpot because it turns out this was the storage locker of Justin Viard, the former consul general uh, of Haiti uh, in Montreal. He's now Haiti's representative to the UN in Geneva. And I guess when he left for Geneva, he put all of his stuff into storage. And here's the stuff that he says he put into storage. Over $200,000 in paintings, uh, Impressionism, um, you know, wonderful paintings by the great names in contemporary West Indian art. Over $200,000 worth of those paintings. 60 pairs of shoes worth over $20,000. Four cases of uh, wine, Chateauneuf du Pop, 14 grand worth of that. A $35,000 Rolex, a uh, $3,800 set of gold cufflinks, golden diamond ring, a nice solid silverware set, and $14,000 in Ultramar gasoline (laughs) gift cards. Just the normal shit that a diplomat has in storage 
in some industrial part of Montreal. And now Justin Viard is is suing to get his stuff back. They've, the, the bailiff has seized the paintings, but the other stuff, Roxanne Balthazar says, oh, no, no, I didn't see all that other stuff in there, or most of it. Uh, just an incredible little story of two worlds colliding uh, in Montreal. Yes, uh, a story of excess, opulence, possibly political corruption. I mean, it could be an episode out of that reality show, Stor- Storage Wars. I mean, th- that would probably be the, its, its best episode. Uh, Vincent Larouche is a terrific journalist uh, at La Presse, and he's known to produce these, you know, amazing stories. No, I, I duly noted. What do you got? Uh, just a couple of, of stories that have been uh, eclipsed by the uh, pandemic, and one would be the other epidemic uh, in Canada. I'm talking about the opioid crisis. In British Columbia uh, last year, it, you know, the province uh, set a record of, of uh, 1,700 uh, drug overdoses. And last month in Quebec, police were warning uh, in the Quebec City area uh, residents about um, fentanyl after uh, after a drug raid. So I, I think this is this is a crisis that has taken a back seat to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is where the news media should be able to uh, focus more on it. I know where I work at the Montreal Gazette, perhaps this is something that we we could focus more on. Uh, Another story, I think that um, this is not necessarily a function of the news media um, chasing after another story, but I think perhaps uh, landlords may be exploiting the pandemic to renovate. So, you know, there's a story out of the Toronto Star today about uh, renovations in Toronto. And um, former colleague Christopher Curtis, great friend, he wrote about elderly couple in Montreal uh, that are being uh, renovated by this um, real estate uh, firm. So this is something that uh, that I think perhaps landlords or slumlords are taking advantage of in the, in the pandemic to push this through. Duly noted. Duly noted. Um, I'm going to duly note one more here. I want to duly note that I might be the last Canadian following the ethics committee hearings into the youth services grant and we charity. But man, it is wild. And it's interesting how this played out because I think the last time when everyone was really paying attention was this this weird drama where the Kilbergers were uh, refusing to come testify, um, and then the MPs were grandstanding that they would they would drag them in in chains, and then there was this. Um, negotiation about bringing their lawyer in and will the lawyer have a microphone so they could yell object to the MPs or not, which has never happened before. And to, I mean, you know, anyhow, that that got a lot of headlines and it sort of ended with a bit of a whimper because, you know, the Kilbergers came and, and they delivered their big speech and then the MPs asked their questions, which were really like little mini speeches. There were a couple of revelations in the, in the process, but I kind of feel like after that whole thing had its whole arc, um, there was a waning interest in where these committees uh, hearings were going next. But for me, I want to know about the money. I was more focused on Victor Lee, the CFO, who's the CFO, the chief financial officer, not just of their charity, but also their private company. And he was summoned as well. And he's like involved in a lot of their like private real estate stuff. And he's a uh, his his name is on some of their other companies. He's involved throughout their operations. We re- reported on him o- over the summer because the guy like lists like credentials we could not verify in China, the U.S., U.K. He was saying uh, on Wee's website that he was a certified accountant. We could find no record of that. So I thought when this guy gets on the stand, we might actually learn something. Well, this has gone really underreported, but uh, he also refused to come. He said he was too sick to come. And, you know, maybe he is sick and can't come testify. It's a Zoom call. 
He was too sick to get on a Zoom call. So they accommodated him, and they sent him the questions in written form, which is like a totally different thing. Like you can really, if you're on the stand, you don't know what what the next question you're going to get asked is, and you have to answer contemporaneously on the spot. Here he had all the questions in advance, and he just skipped 50 of them. I didn't know you could do that, Aaron. I'm not even outraged. I'm just like, I'm like, wow. Like, I didn't know that when the, when the tough question comes, you could just like not say anything. And that's what he's done to the questions that are specifically about like how much money left the charity and went into the company and what happened, why did this weird real estate thing happen with this guy who was living in your house, but also an employee of we who you were selling we real estate to. I thought that the MPs could actually compel answers to this in a way that a journalist, I can't, but apparently you can just, I don't know, can you? Like, it's kind of a, like, it's kind of a fuck around and find out thing. And what happens next? I mean, whether you're following this story or not, I don't know if anyone's ever tried this before. And I'm just fascinated to see what's going to happen next now that he's just gone completely silent on the most piercing questions. That to me is absolutely shocking. I mean, it says something that uh, that he was silent on no fewer than 50 uh, questions. Uh, he has to be uh, compelled uh, to answer those questions uh, under some type of penalty, because uh, otherwise, how, uh, how can we get to the bottom of this uh, scandal? Uh, uh, I'm curious, how much money do you th- do you think has been misspent uh, in total? I wouldn't even begin to hazard a guess. I mean, this is a $60 million a year charity, but um, we're talking about literally dozens and dozens of ancillary entities, companies, corporations, and this is over 25 years. Where we're getting these figures from that that the charity is $60 million is from them, right? So how do we even begin to try to take this apart? I mean, it's the kind of thing where people have been calling for CRA audit, but the CRA would only be able to audit, assumedly, the charity or the Canadian entities to actually get to the bottom line of this. What the assets are of these different entities is, uh, it's a huge mystery box. Where does the money come from, but from donations or their charity-affiliated commercial operations? I would suspect that um, following, you know, uh, Canada Land's exposés on We, I would expect that, or suspect that there are other charities Charities, Canadian charities that might be engaging in, in questionable accounting and and fundraising. There, you know, uh, should there be some type of commission on on charities? I I don't know, but I I have looked into this myself. Uh, not the We uh, charity, but a health related charity, and um, this is definitely worth uh, investigating journalistically. Uh, and and the authorities uh, should take a sort of a broader look at this beyond I think the We charity. I agree. And, uh, you know, people pointed out like, well, a lot of this stuff is like, you know, there's dodgy stuff happening elsewhere. Why don't we look at that? To which I'm like, yes, let's look at that. Please bring me (laughs) anything you know. But there's there's sort of a rift because there are some charities, some charities have actually been leading the charge for scrutiny of weed charity because they see that this is bad for the charitable sector. And they said, we need to reinstill confidence in Canadian donors. Like there needs to be investigation and consequences of bad things happened here because uh, my charity doesn't do this stuff. And, and, and what we can't have is people saying, well, I'm not going to give money to charity anymore. So I think that there's kind of two things that are necessary here. You know, ever since I think the mean-spirited um, targeting of charities in the Harper years, the CRA has really backed off of the sector. But the tax-exempt status of charities is rife for abuse. And uh, I am getting whispers and some tips even about other places where stuff like this has happened, perhaps not in the same very bizarre and complicated way. But absolutely, like all of this stuff is, I think, long overdue for, for a really close look. Duly noted. 
This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, a canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Aaron, it's a hell of a thing, but some people out there have opinions, and they actually share them in public. And... One of those people is a guy named Amir Acharan, who is a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. I, I, I was not really familiar with him until he tweeted out an opinion that, like, I must read this 100 times a day on Twitter. Uh, but he tweeted out that Quebec has a white supremacist government. Fair uh, or not. People have opinions. That was his opinion, that Quebec's government is a white supremacist government. And he offered various um, bits of evidence to uh, back that argument. But that's not the kind of thing that uh, we can just let slip by, somebody tweeting an opinion. And so the Prime Minister of Canada singled Acheran out by denouncing the statement. Uh, on va toujours être là pour défendre la liberté d'expression, mais je pense que uh, ça va faire le Québec bashing. Uh, Justin Trudeau is tired of the Quebec bashing, with reference to Acheran's tweet. Justin Trudeau had enough of this and assumedly uh, enough of Amir Acharan. The premier of Quebec, François Legault, echoed similar sentiments. J'étais déçu, effectivement, de voir que le recteur de l'Université d'Ottawa n'a pas condamné les propos de son prof, et c'est inacceptable. Saying it was unacceptable. This was an unacceptable tweet, and he was disappointed in the president of Adaran's university for not more vehemently condemning Adaran's comments. I mean, he did condemn them, but uh, needed a bit more vehemence. Aaron, what the hell is this? Have you ever heard of such a thing from an elected leader like the Premier of Quebec? Has such a thing ever happened before? Well, uh, it is, uh, you know, quite surprising. But I think what's happened is that the... Um the French language media have, uh, you know, seized on this initially, wrote about it. Then the Parti Québécois as well uh, focused on it and um, demanded that Adrian apologize uh, to the Quebec people. So there's obviously a political aspect to this, you know, that the PQ uh, is seeking to exploit. And, you know, journalists have been asking the questions and denouncing Adrian. So it's caused uh, quite a uh, tempest in a teapot uh, in Quebec. Now, it's interesting that you mention Aaron because he follows me on Twitter. And on March 12th, uh, I wrote about how Montreal had all three of the COVID-19 uh, variants. And um, he commented on my tweet writing, uh, this is not the hat trick the Habs need. So, you know, there's this flippant style that he has. Sometimes he could be a bit snide and he gets on people's nerves. Um, <laughs> 
And certainly, you know, recently what he seized on was um, was news that uh, there's this, a hospital north of Montreal, St. Eustache Hospital, that had posted, um, you know, these job uh, openings for healthcare workers who are white only. And that grabbed Adirond's attention, and, and he suggested this is, you know, clear evidence that the uh, government is uh, a white supremacist one because, uh, you know, that hospital is a branch of the government. I think that's uh, stretching things a bit. But, you know, when we're talking about Quebec and this notion of Quebec bashing, it's always been a sensitive issue, and I think it'll continue to be one. Well, you know, uh, first of all, I do not want to defend anyone who's snarky and snide on Twitter. We all know how I feel about those types of people. But I, I kind of feel like that's something that maybe people do on Twitter and is sort of part of you know the way we live. I don't mean to be naive about this because um, to this idea of like, hey, maybe that's just Justin Trudeau's opinion back at another person who expressed their opinion and this is just a wonderful exchange of ideas. I think that there is a consensus elsewhere maybe that like – that is not appropriate for somebody who wields as much power as a prime minister or a premier, that to single out an individual critic for scorn from the seat of power is a kind of disproportionate response, especially when it's to score cheap political points. So I think I felt for a long time that this was a particular like facet or quirk of Quebec that um, whatever hesitation we have in the, in the rest of Canada to having politicians single out journalists or single out individual critics or academics even was just not a it was not stigmatized in, in Quebec. But I don't think that I can uh, I don't think I can say that anymore because this this uh, happened to, to a journalist here in Ontario just recently uh, Bruce Arthur had been a, a popular sports writer for the Toronto Star and it's an interesting kind of thing that like he sort of turned his attention to covering COVID um, he has a massive Twitter following of like 100,000 people but he, he, he got this following as a sports writer so it's kind of interesting for him to pivot and to be kind of giving this like a different kind of news to an audience that signed on for something else um, but he's been doing really wonderful work covering the Ontario uh, provincial response to COVID and he got blasted in a way that was, I think, really ugly, where he was writing a piece about uh, General Rick Hillier, who was leading uh, the Doug Ford task force in rolling out the vaccine and was just like really fucking it up and then quit. And Arthur had a lot of scathing words for Hillier, but the line that got him in trouble was it was said the general had tired of the criticism. Maybe it's a good thing Canada doesn't fight in actual wars, which, again, is something that is like both offensive and, and true. But, you know, this was seized upon in the same way that I think you can kind of like you can bet that a lot of Quebecers will uh, cheer you on against a Quebec basher. I think the conservatives um, felt like, OK, uh, he crossed a line there and this is this is just like good raw meat politics. There are plenty of Canadians that will see this as an attack on Canada's military. And so um, there was a, a, an email blast from an MPP, uh, a Ford MPP, but also just like uh, Twitter comments and people close to Ford seized on Bruce Arthur. And the interesting thing about this is, like, as our editor Jonathan Goldsby pointed out, they will attack people from time to time, usually when they're fundraising. But in this email blast attacking Bruce Arthur and singling him out as somebody who has dishonored Canada's military, there was no call for money. It was just this email blast to like, to hell with Bruce Arthur, everybody. This is a bad guy who disrespects Canada's military. Arthur's written about it since and said like, you know, I don't mean to kind of like set him up as a victim here because apparently he got like, you know, 10 nasty emails about that. But it, it, it did occur to me that like, you know, 
things are getting normal that were not normal before. And I don't think that um, Justin Trudeau thinks of himself as a Trumpian leader. And maybe, maybe, maybe Doug Ford does. But the opportunity cost of singling out a journalist as a politician, I think that it's the risk level has gone way down since Trump made that okay. And we're weaker as an industry as ever before. There are fewer reporters than ever before, and we are taking more shit from powerful people who are really egging on the public to hate our guts in a way that I don't think happened as commonly, at least not outside of Quebec. It's just gotten normal. And I think that was my takeaway from, from these cases. It's like, huh, Prime Minister going after an academic, uh, Ford's people going after a journalist. I guess that's just going to happen more and more. It is a, a disturbing uh, trend. I think that Trump started it, right? It's uh, it's open season on journalists. And um, and then it's been exacerbated during the pandemic. I think the, the solution is just to hold your ground. In Bruce's case, you know, it's a column. So he's entitled to his opinions. He's... Uh, People reading what he writes know that he's writing a column, you know, and in that particular column, he was criticizing the chaotic uh, vaccine uh, rollout in Ontario. You know, the, uh, Doug Ford appointed uh, Hillier because uh, he's a retired general, and that feeds into this notion of uh, we're on a war footing in uh, attacking the pandemic, and so we're going to hire, uh, we're going to appoint this, uh, you know, a retired general to oversee the vaccine rollout. But you know, Hillier has no experience dealing with pandemics. Aaron, that's a really good point. Arthur's criticisms were harsh, but they were within the context of like for some reason. I think Ford thought like, yeah, general, that that'll show that I'm serious about the vaccine which is always a dubious notion. So if he's going to kind of play into this military pageantry and then the guy makes a lot of mistakes and is chaotic and then retreats, quits, is it not fair to kind of go after him as a general? Like, I'll use your analogy. The the general is in retreat. Precisely. So I think it's fair comment. And he struck a a nerve. uh, So they attacked him. I think that... uh, the only thing we can do really is is do the best job we can, and to stand up to politicians, not to be cowed by them when they when they attack us. I, I wanted to to pick up a little bit on what you had said before about the University of Ottawa. There's a debate here, right? The debate is systemic racism. Premier Francois Legault, he's denying that there is systemic racism in uh, the province. He, you know, he draws a distinction. He says, yes, there is racist behavior in the province, but there's no systemic racism. And uh, so it's a legitimate debate. And it's come up recently because, as I said, there were these job postings for white-only healthcare workers at a hospital in Senior Stash. And uh, Amir Adaran has jumped on this, right? And so it's a very, very sensitive moment uh, in Quebec because, you know, this issue touches on systemic racism, Quebec identity, Quebec bashing, cancel culture. It's all wrapped up, plus social media and trolling. You know, I've, I faced uh, similar criticism in Quebec when I called out uh, our premier, Francois Legault. And uh, fortunately, it's subsided. Uh, what's interesting, I don't know if it's a double standard, but Adaram is an academic at the University of Ottawa. So at one point uh, prior to the controversy uh, regarding his his Twitter comments about Quebec being, a, you know, allegedly a white supremacist society. What's interesting is that there was another academic at the same university who had been um, criticized for using the N-word during one of her lectures. And during that period, uh, the Quebec media rallied to her defense. Wow. Use the N-word. We're on your side. Uh, academic freedom. Say some nasty stuff about Quebec. Shut it down. Eesh. 
That's a little revealing. Aaron, that is Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. I can be emailed about it at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email that you send me. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. Aaron Derfell, where can people find you? Well, they could uh, find me uh, on my Twitter uh, feed and read my articles and those of my colleagues uh, at montrealgazette.com. We have a website, Aaron. It is at canadaland.com, where people can read a lot of uh, written posts that we publish there. This episode of Shortcuts is produced by Tiffany Lamb, with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. People, if you like what we do uh, and you want to support us, well, I think you should. And uh, we want to give you ad-free versions of all of our podcasts when you do, and socks and other things like that. It's very easy. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.